0: Welcome to the Circular Economy Show podcast from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Over the next few episodes, we're going back to basics to look at what we mean by a circular economy, how it works, and share some examples of it in action. We're revisiting three of our most popular episodes, featuring conversations between our founder, Ellen MacArthur, and Joe Isles, the foundation's circular design program lead, who will also look at what the circular economy might mean for you, and what you can do with this new information. In this first episode, we'll hear why Ellen left her sailing career to explore the circular economy and what she's learned along the way. And we will also be learning why the concept is gaining traction now. Jo started by asking Ellen what she thought the simplest way of describing the circular economy is. I
1: always think that the simplest way to kind of get the circular economy is to think about the difference between a line, literally a straight line and a circle. And when we talk about how we use stuff, you know, materials, things, metals, plastics in our economy today, we use stuff up. Eventually it falls off the end of that line. It becomes waste. It becomes rubbish. It falls off the end of, a, of its useful kind of platform. If you turn that line into a circle, then you think of everything that goes into the economy, stuff, food, metal, plastic, everything goes around in a circle. And it keeps going around in a circle. So the materials can be fed back into the system. Food waste gets broken down and turned into fertilizer. You know, metals get recycled and put into the next products. It's all about a system, a straight line shifting to a circle.
2: We've achieved a lot. We have homes to live in, cars of transport to move us around. Um, we food to eat, electronics and wonderful gadgets and things like that. Mm. So what's the, what's the problem? Why, do, why does that need to change?
1: Well, I think part of the point is actually many people in the world don't have that. You know, We do. We live in the Western world. We're incredibly lucky to have access to all of this equipment. Actually, there are billions of people in the world who really don't have that, who don't have transport, who don't have clean water, who have many, many challenges every day just to survive. If we're going to have everybody um, emerge from the emerging you know, markets and, and developing countries and have access to what we do, then we're going to have to operate in a different way because all those things we have access to need materials, they need energy, and they need to sit within a system of some description, even if that system is linear. When those people come out of be uh, well, the, the new three billion middle class consumers that are going to enter the marketplace over the next few decades, You know, if they're going to have access to what we have, we're going to have to provide that in a different way. We're going to have to use the materials more intelligently. We're going to have to be incredibly careful with how we recover biological material to regenerate farmland and be able to build restorative systems rather than kind of eking out our farmland a little bit longer, which is what we're doing today.
2: So how did you come to discover this circular economy and begin working on it?
1: Well, for me, I never, ever thought I would do this. My previous life was racing boats around the world, generally on my own and generally non-stop. And it was my dream job. It's all I'd ever wanted to do from the age of four. But when you set off on one of those journeys, one of those trips, you get everything you need for your survival on the boat. The minimum, because you have to be light. And then when you leave for that three-month journey, you manage what you have down to the last drop of diesel and the last packet of food. You know, you watch... Every single bag of food go down, you watch that diesel go down every single day that you need to charge the batteries. You just know that what you have is all you have, and there is no more and You feel that when you 're two and a half thousand miles away from the nearest town you 're in the middle of the southern ocean. If help needs to get to you it 's five days to get a ship to you and then if they can get you off the boat it 's five days to get you back into a city so actually, you are incredibly remote and it taught me what finite meant. It taught me the definition of the word finite and I never really translated that to anything outside of sailing because sailing was a different world and it's what I did at sea and you go and it's a, it's a completely different experience. And then it kind of dawned on me that, you know, what's the difference between using things up on the boat and using them up in our global economy, the way the economy functions uses stuff up? And to begin with, I thought, you know, someone had the answer. It's obviously a big challenge. There must be an answer out there. But so much of the conversation that was going on back in 2006, 7, 8, when I was researching this was about using less and traveling less and doing less and everything seemed really reductive. Um, and, you know, yes, you can make something using less material. You can make something using less energy. But ultimately, if you're still using those materials up, then the economy's never going to run in the long term, especially with a growing world population and you know, finite resources. And so I questioned even further and, and researched even further. I read everything I could get my hands on. And started to come across ideas like industrial symbiosis, biomimicry, performance economy, sharing economy, cradle-to-cradle design. And you start to think, if you get all of these ideas and you kind of bring them together and you look at how you design products and recover the materials and design them to have nothing toxic in, how the products flow through the economy from a performance economy, sharing economy perspective, look at how you design them from a biomimicry perspective, then actually you begin to see the shift from linear to circular.
2: On In the past... Ten years. What have been some of perhaps the the more shocking, um, sh- more shocking experiences for you uh, that have really renewed or, or confirmed this call for a circular economy?
1: I think they they came before the circular economy for me on this journey of trying to understand how the economy works. You know, how do we use stuff? How much stuff do we use? How many years of this stuff do we have? And I remember one really really key moment on that journey when I was. Uh, visiting a coal-fired power station, and I went to the power station to see how energy is made, and it was a fascinating experience. Standing in this 180-foot-high burner, the guys were welding the steel pipes that carried the steam that drove the turbines. It was very ha- kind of hands-on, and I remember thinking about coal more deeply and the story of coal being a big part of my family. My great grandfather was a miner, um, and I remembered him. You know, he was alive until I was 11 years old, and I was thinking about you know dates and times and how much coal have we got left you know we often hear oil talked about but not so much coal and i remember looking at the world coal association homepage and there right in the middle this was in 2008 or 9 it said we're not about to run out of coal we've got about 118 years left and i remember thinking about that number thinking well you know that's outside my lifetime that's still away in the future but then i did the maths and realized that my great grandfather had been born exactly 118 years before that year and i thought it's nothing you know, I knew him. He was alive until I was 11 years old. He was my friend. And it just makes you connect so strongly with what this stuff that we use and realise we just can't keep using stuff up forever. There has to be a different way.
2: And when people talk about a model that works in the long term or or say that the this straight line linear economy can't work in the long term, sometimes that word long term it kind of pushes the problem, mm. makes it seem mm. uh, like something we'll have to deal with. In a, in a few generations' time or even further, actually um, a lot of the problems...
1: Kind of are, now. Yeah, they're yeah, now yeah. or
2: they're, or we're talking a number of decades. I mean, I, I had the day that we have, I can't remember it's precisely, it's like 60 years of harvests left yes, because it. of topsoil top erosion.
1: You know, when I first started learning about resources and how we use them, you know, stuff really. I remember a conversation I had with one of the chief operating officers of one of the biggest European car manufacturers, Renault at the time, And I remember him saying that in the 12 months prior to our conversation, the cost of raw materials, the metal and plastic that they have to buy to build their cars to survive, had gone up by 500 million euros. Now, that's something that they have no control over because they have to buy stuff to make cars, to sell cars, to continue, their model is selling is pushing more and more cars through a system, and that really shocked me because that was real and that was then and that was a number, you know, based on resource constraints, based on some of the the challenges geographically to get these resources, and it was very very real. You know, if there was a way you could isolate yourself from that, you know, could that really work?
2: Let's run through a couple of uh, examples of different products, and maybe I'll just get your view on what that would look like in a circular economy. Mm-hmm. So, um, plastic. We know that um, plastic. It is a huge issue at the moment. People have seen it on Blue Planet or it's in the news every every day, it seems. What about something like a plastic bottle? If you if we were rethinking that for a circular economy, what would it be like?
1: Well, plastic's a really interesting one because you know, we know plastic is a massive problem. We know that 32% of seventy-eight million tons leaks out in the environment. We know that only two percent of seventy-eight million tons actually gets recycled back into plastic of in the same quality. So really, from a recycling perspective, we've failed when it comes to plastic packaging massively
2: even though it's, there's been a lot of uh, efforts in the past huge in efforts, decades
1: but i think some of the problem with plastics comes back to that conversation around design and system you know we make the most phenomenal plastic packaging that will have multi layers in it it'll keep chicken fresh it'll keep the air out it'll do many many things but that plastic's just designed to do that and at the end of the life of that piece of plastic there is no effort to go it's not designed within a, to fit within a system And the challenge within a circular economy is to build a system that can actually function. So all plastic that's made, all plastic packaging that's made is designed to be recyclable somehow, or compostable to fit within the biological cycle, or reusable, and then ultimately recycled. So if you design all plastic to fit within that system, then any piece of plastic anywhere in the world will be recovered because it has value, because it has value as a raw material. It does
2: have value, but people perceive it as really cheap, right? So it's, uh, I mean after a little sachet or that bit of um, thin plastic that coats that chicken, um, when that's done, it's, it's seen as kind of worthless. So who's <laughs> going to bother to um, put the infrastructure in place to, 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 to capture that value?
1: I think part of the problem today is that much of the plastic that's made is not designed to be recycled at all. Some is, absolutely. Some is very well designed to be recycled, but the majority still isn't. You know, those sachets, those thin films, it's just not designed to be recycled. So not only does the infrastructure have to change to make the plastic in a different way, but once the plastic's made in a different way, there's then a massive incentive to build the infrastructure to collect it because it's valuable, it has value. It may be small bits, it may be complex. As Some parts may not be plastic at all in the future, but you build a system to work. So any plastic that's produced from a packaging perspective is designed to be recyclable. Um, if it's not plastic, it's designed to be compostable, so it enters the biosphere and it's ultimately never waste, or it's something which is reusable.
2: Well, talk to us about that, because recycling... It's just one part of the, the circular economy. There are other ways to redesign uh, products and, and services and systems. Um, beyond beyond that, why would you move to reusing something where, rather than recycling, which is um, very uh, more maybe a easier or more common practice?
1: Um, I'd say that there are many many elements that can be reused. You know, we. In this country, we had reusable milk bottles. If you look in Asia, much of the water that's sold is sold in completely reusable big jugs, like massive jugs. That's common practice, and that's actually a very large proportion of the, you know, the Asian water um, uh, system. You know, when you when you buy bottled water, it's it's not you know an individual bottle like we're used to. It's it's a it's a big jug. Um, so that reusable element is already out there in the world, more in some markets than others. But sometimes it makes sense to continue to use a piece of. Um, a, a bottle or a, a piece of packaging. But ultimately, you then need to work out where that sits because it's not just that it's reusable. You need that to ultimately be recyclable. But it may be aluminium, it may be glass, it may be plastic. Not necessarily all recyclable plastic. The recyclable element is anything that's made in plastic is then valorized. It then has a value. It's something which is valuable because it's recyclable. And if all plastic is made that like that globally, which is obviously the goal, then every bit of plastic feeds into one bin. It gets recovered and it gets recycled.
2: Now, what about car? What 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 would a car look like in a in a circular economy?
1: When you look at cars today, they're parked the majority of the time. You know, over 90% of the car the time, the car is just parked, not being used. And then when it is used, the majority of the time, it's got one or two people in it. So it's actually really ineffective. When you look at and it's inefficient when you look at the amount of material, the amount of cost for that car, and it just sits either parked at work or parked at home or parked at the shops. So within a circular economy, of course, you would design the car so you can remanufacture it, so you can disassemble it, so you could recover the materials. But we probably wouldn't own it. We'd probably have access to it somehow, either leasing it or you would pay per mile or, you know, like Zipcar zip car or Streetcar. There are so many examples now, particularly in cities where more and more people are living, whereby you have access to this car. And once the car isn't yours and you don't physically buy it, then almost the manufacturers incentivize to build a slightly different car because they don't want to build it as cheaply as possible to sell because they only make money when they sell another car. They want to make a car that's actually that works, that's remanufacturable, that they can recover the materials from because they're probably leasing that into a system. They will get that back. They will want to be able to get as much value out of that for the second cycle or the third cycle as possible.
2: Next on my list of things to redesign, what about something completely different to what we've spoken about so far? What about a sandwich? A sandwich. How is, what's a circular sandwich like? And don't say a bagel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think when it comes to food, you no, know, just go back to basic principles. We have, you know, the nat- natural systems have regenerated forever. You know, we have traditionally put materials back onto farmland to fertilise farmland, you know, maybe 200, 300 years ago. With the Industrial Revolution and this this kind of speeding up the system of production, we've used many chemical fertilisers, we've not taken the biological which we have
2: material. needed to do, right, to feed we have a to, massive population. To feed a
1: massive population, but the way we've done that is to extract more, to put it on the land, which has actually degraded the land in the majority of cases, and, and that speeded up production, but you need more and more fertiliser to put on more and more fields, and you need more and more water because the biomass isn't there. So actually, although it's it's feeding more, it's a kind of... False feeding more because ultimately, in you know a thousand years, we can't run in the same way. So what we're looking at with the circular economy and your sandwich is how do you make that sandwich so that the land that the, the, the corn is grown on to make the flour that land is re- is regenerated. So it's regenerative agriculture. There's biomass going onto that land. There's biological fertilizer going onto that land to grow the corn to be able to recover the the the. the um, the seeds, to make the flour, to make the sandwich. And the salad in that sandwich may come from the periphery of a city, where all that human waste, all that food waste, which we pile into cities, because you know, more people than ever, over half the population of the world now live in cities, that biological material is concentrated in cities and absolutely not valorized. Now in the past... It's a,
2: waste. It's a problem
1: though. It's, it's a problem, but it's also a wasted, valuable material, which would be far better off growing things and rebuilding natural capital than and becoming a kind of financial problem because it's not wanted within the centre of a city. So, so actually, how do you make that circular sandwich? You have to go right back to how you grow everything and how you then recover the waste from that sandwich, which ultimately would be human waste, um, or maybe the crusts that you don't yeah, eat and waste. end up in the food waste. Um, how do you get those back into the system so that system can be truly regenerative and restorative?
2: When you think about that, simple concept moving from a straight line to a circle obviously there's layers of complexity and all sorts of challenges within that but when you start thinking like that you do start to see opportunities everywhere around you whether it's the uh, things that you buy um, electronic products or the homes you live in clothes things like that um, what can be challenging next is what people can actually do yeah. so when people say that to you what can I do now that I'm fired up about this circular economy idea? What's your response?
1: It's kind of a two-pronged response, I think, because there is that feeling of, I get circular, how do we make it happen? And circular, you know, as as the consumer, or as we would say at the foundation, the user, because hopefully we use things and not consume things, we can't change the system. We can try to influence the system with our choices, but the bottom line is that system has to be built differently to enable us to use things and not consume things. At the moment, when we buy plastic packaging, it's not designed to fit within a cycle or a system. It's designed to keep our chicken fresh and then ultimately it just becomes waste. So the system has to change. So I would say there's a two-pronged approach. One is the system has to change, which you can do little about apart from influence it through the second point, which is your choices. And then the other element would be in your life, in your job, if you're going to become a designer or a material scientist or a marketeer, Think how you can sell circular. How can you make circular overtake linear? How would you sell a product of the future? How would you make a material of the future? It's incredibly exciting. Once you see that system to make that product fit within, that material fit within, then you know exactly what you're designing for.
2: So it's about when people say, what can I do? Well, consider you might be in a role where you can actually influence the sorts of products that are made, how they're sold, are the sorts of options that are available to people that buy that particular product. For If people aren't in that role or in that sort of position, and they're just thinking about different choices that they could make, are there choices out there at the moment? Sometimes it feels like there are not that many really circular options for the things that we buy or use.
1: I think some things you would not assume as being circular, but actually are much more circular than we'd imagine. I mean, think about you know our technology, your phone. Your phone, we used to you know pay per month and you'd have a contract and you would own your phone and then you were offered a new phone. So you'd take up the new phone offer as it was part of the contract and you'd end up with an old phone. What we're seeing more and more of today is an, a phone contract whereby you have that phone every year, but you get a new phone the next year, but the old one goes back. So effectively, you pay slightly less because you're not buying the technology, you're just having the use of it. When the next technology comes through, you move on to the next one, but that phone goes back into the system. Then it can be disassembled, it can be remanufactured, it maybe go to someone else, but it's it's in a system, it's in a loop. It's going to go back to someone who knows what to do with it, whereas we don't, you know, we don't know what to do with an old phone.
2: And in, a, in this sort of transition from linear to circular, for people that want to um, contribute, genuinely to picking a more circular option, um, having the right mindset to spot the ones that are genuinely ah. circular and the ones that just aim to eke out resources, which is, as you've said before, very important, but mm. it doesn't get us to a, a fundamentally different economy. Mm. We need that mindset shift to be able to spot those opportunities.
1: We do, and I think it's, it's it comes back to your point about using resources or consuming resources. If you're trying to shift from the straight line to the circle... You know, how would you have access to stuff, whatever that may be, without consuming it? You know, can you shift to just using it? That could be a type of packaging that you know can be recyclable or fit back in a system. It could be how you have access to your phone, how you have access to your clothes, how you have access to mobility. You know, do you own a car? Do you lease a car? Do you have Zipcar or Streetcar? Or you know, how does this whole system work? You know, are you actually consuming these materials? Or are they continuing to flow within the economy?
2: And ultimately, if we're if there are signals being sent to the people that provide those products and, and services that this is a good way of doing things, that not only does it make business sense um, and and saves resources or energy or um, presents a, an economic advantage, but its customers are preferring to use mm. those solutions, those options, then that surely will build momentum. In that direction
1: absolutely i think your point about this being a better system being a better option being an easier option often a cheaper option will just make it happen i mean spotify came along because it worked it was easy it was access immediate you didn't have to physically buy something that was there the tangible you hold it was actually about something that you listen to it was a piece of data and um, it just worked and-, and at
2: the same time it was something that was becoming feasible through other trends like digital technology and mm. um, in the same way that we can do things now that with, with circular economy principles that we maybe couldn't have done um, 10 or 15 years ago.
1: Yeah, that the, we're at the nexus, to use that word, of the circular economy and technology helping each other. And, you know, I feel personally we have, you know, this incredible technological ability. We seem to be able to do anything, you know, 3D print limbs. We can, um, you know, we can design systems that transfer data all over the world. We feel we can do anything, but almost to what end? You know, what are you trying to build or create with that? And I think what circular economy does is it gives a lens so that that new technology, that new ability can be focused to build a restorative, regenerative system, an economy that works in the long term, that, that is able to separate growth from resources, so we can still have growth and prosperity, and and you know billions of people coming out of poverty, having access to the goods that that we do in the Western world, but in a different way, and and it, it channels that innovation and creativity in in a very tangible way.
0: So. Now we've got the basics covered, in the next episode, Ellen and Joe will go into the specifics of a circular economy, looking at things such as repair, remanufacturing, recycling, and the biological side of the system, like food. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you want to hear more from the Circular Economy Show podcast, make sure to follow or subscribe. It also really helps us if you leave us a review if you like what you hear. Thanks for listening and see you next time.